Corey's very kind with the introduction. Um, turn with me to, to the book of Titus, chapter 2. The book of Titus, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Let me see if I can adjust this a little bit. All right, Titus, chapter 2 is a pleasure to be up here again. I was uh, thinking back this morning and uh, realized that last year I also preached the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And like today, last year I preached nothing related to Thanksgiving, so you know, there you go. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Titus chapter 2, beginning verse 11, is where we will be today. Uh, before we begin, let's uh, go to the Lord again in prayer and ask for him to bless us. Father, we just come to you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for this time that we can worship you. Father, thank you for every breath that you've given us, every day that you've given us to live. And God, thank you for this time, this special time when we can come before you to just quiet our heart and hear from you, learn from you, but also, Lord, to know how we can obey you. Father, I pray that would you quicken our hearts and our spirits today, would you calm us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit and help us to fix our eyes on you, to quicken our ears to listen to your Holy Spirit's voice. And I pray that, God, may we be more than just listeners of the word, but be doers of the word. God, help us to be zealous for every good work, like your word is saying today. God, we pray that would you visit us this morning. God, would you touch our hearts and quicken our feet, that we might be quick to obey as we have heard from you today. God, we love you. We give this time to you. May you speak to us right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About a month or so ago, my wife and I were at home and we were watching a movie, a, a romance comedy called Blast from the Past. And uh, the, the, the premise of the story basically is that there's this uh, genius scientist and his wife living in the Cold War era. And they were deathly afraid of the Soviet nuclear attack. And as a result, he decided to construct for himself a nuclear fallout shelter right underneath his house. And he supplied it with every appliance, electricity, and water, and all the food that they would need to hide out in that shelter for a very long time. And as you would have it, uh, one day a plane happened to crash nearby and he heard a loud boom inside his house. And would you know it, uh, he thought that a nuclear bomb just exploded nearby. And so what did he do? Well, he, he took his wife and went down to a nuclear shelter and decided to live there until the danger has passed. Well, as time went on, they, they, they gave birth to a little baby boy in, in the shelter. And years and years and years went by. And of course, food supply began to run low and this little boy that they gave birth to is now a young man. And uh, so they decided to send his son, uh, this young man who has only ever known a shelter, to go out into this world. Well, of course, you know, as you might imagine, it's been years, and so the outside world is totally different, uh, but also this outside world is filled with vices. Uh, people that would cheat others out of money and, and, and take advantage of others, and, and then comes this young man who has never been out there, and, and he had two tasks. His main mission is to buy food for his family, but also, it's a romance comedy, so you know, his other mission is to find a wife. 
And as the movie goes, as you expect, he comes across this beautiful blonde young lady who, you know, he was trying to sell these baseball cards in a hobby shop and this lady was in there and, and you know, just discovered that this young man is totally different from the world. A world of vices and a world of cheats and liars and people who would take advantage of others. But this guy is totally genuine, totally kind, and just different. And it got us thinking, like, what makes us different from the world? And why should we be different from the world, right? Are we living differently because we go to church? Are we living differently because our pastor says so, right? Why are we different? And how should we be different, right? Well, instead of trying to figure out what the answer should be, Paul actually gave us the answer here in our text today. So look with me to Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and we're going to go all the way to verse 14. Just four verses as we discover why we should live differently from the world. Paul writes in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Titus that he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, but this is the passage we're looking at today. As Paul begins to tell us why we should live differently from the world, he tells us something that has happened in the past and something that we should know in the present and then something to look forward to in the future. Then he's going to wrap us up with our identity and our new duty. And so as we look into this passage, we see that the first word of verse 11 is for which should tell us that there's something that came before it, right? None of us ever wake up in the morning and says, for I should have a cup of coffee. You know, we don't do that, right? We don't, we don't start a conversation with like, for, you know, no. But there is something that came before it. And so we know from the book, from the page before it, right, that the book of Titus starts with Titus chapter 1. And uh, Titus uh, was left behind, as Paul tells us in, ch- in chapter 1, that Paul left Titus behind on the island of Crete, to set things in order, and to elect pastor in every church, to raise up pastor in every church. And then then Paul begins to tell us something about the Cretans and and, and the the demographic that that Titus is dealing with. In verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul quotes one of the Cretan prophets or poets, and he says, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. A glowing description of the Cretans, right? And then what's more incredible is that Paul, in the next verse, says, this testimony is true. You know? It's like, so, so, so this is who they are. And, and furthermore, the, the chapter finishes with, with Paul telling us that not only are these Cretans lazy, gluttonous liars and evil beasts, but that false prophets, false teachers have also come about, deceiving people and taking advantage of women, kind of like the world that this, this young man in the movie was in, right? You know? and, but such is the context within which 
the Cretan churches existed. Such is the world into which Titus was placed to preach the gospel and to raise up leaders within every church. And in this context of deception, of gluttony, of indulgence, Paul then began to tell us how we should live in Titus chapter two. He tells us how men and women are to behave, how, how slaves should relate to their owners and how masters should treat their slaves. And it's from all of that, that Paul begins to tell us why we should live differently from the world, why Cretans should live differently from the, the islanders around them. And so we see then, Paul says, he tells us something that has happened in the past. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. The word grace is often not well understood in our world today. You might describe a ballerina as saying, oh, she danced so gracefully. To talk about the simple elegance and beauty that, that, that exhibited in, in the dancing of the ballerina, right? But, but the word grace in the Bible goes so much farther than a simple grace and elegance, right? But it, it really talks about this unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor that God has poured out on us. The grace of God has appeared. Furthermore, this phrase, the grace of God has appeared, goes beyond just talking about the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God poured out on us, but the fact that Jesus Christ has come into this world. The grace of God has appeared. You might be reminded of what John, uh, the apostle John wrote in John chapter 1. In John 1 14, the Apostle John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he goes on in verse 17 of chapter 1 that he says, For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came, literally came into being through Jesus Christ. What that means is that Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of God's grace, his unmerited goodness toward us, and his truth in human form. The grace of God has appeared. Notice the tense in which Paul writes this phrase, the grace of God has appeared. We might say something like this in our world today, or I might say something like this, like, yeah, I might say, well, I ate, but what does that mean? It might mean that I, I ate some hours ago, but am I still full? Am I hungry now? Can I eat again? Well, if you know me, I can always eat again, right? But, you know, but there, there's no, no, no thought of, like, present implication, right? But if I were to say, I have eaten, then that means that I ate and I'm still full, and there's an ongoing present implication of my eating. And, then, and that's what this is, this is doing here, is that the grace of God has appeared God appeared to us, and there's present implication of his appearings, right? Even up until recently, we can, we can just look at history books, and we know that God made a difference in our world by the first coming of Christ. Think about how we have referenced history, even up until, up until the recent decades. There's the period called B.C., before Christ, and now we live in a period called the A.D. Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. The fact of the matter is that the first coming of Christ has made a difference in our history. God has broken through into our world and made an impact upon space and time. The grace of God has appeared. 
The fact of the matter is, our faith is a historic faith based on a historic event of the appearing of a historic person. It is not based on some bir- somebody's vision. It is not based on somebody's dream. It's not based on a fairy tale. But the fact is that Christ appeared, the grace of God appeared. God came into time. Why? Why did God come into our world? Paul goes on to tell us. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This phrase, bringing salvation, tells us that we all need something. It is that we all need to be saved. We need salvation. Mike Blackaby, in a video from the Experiencing God Studies, tells a story of a time when he was working for a landscaping company and he was driving this tractor mower down the road and they were going to this cemetery to mow the grass there. And as they arrived, they were told the instruction he was given was that, hey, there's a patch of grass in the cemetery that will look really bad and the grass will look really tall, but don't you go there. Don't mow there because right there in that patch is, are some fresh, freshly laid graves. And so it may look really bad, it may look really tall, but just, just leave it alone. And so as Mike goes on and rides on his tractor mower and he comes across this patch of grass that looks really bad and looks really tall. And he, you know, he decided to you know, trim around the edges, and he was like, well, you know, nothing happened, so you know, just keep going. And, and he decided to mow a little bit closer and edge a little bit closer. And he was like, well, you know, nothing happened, so I'm just going to go for it. And so he decided to take his big old tractor mower right into that patch of freshly laid grave. And before you know it, as he plows right into that grass, his tractor began to sink. Those big old wheels on his tractor began to kick up dirt. And he was like, well, you know, I'll just give it a little more gas and power my way out of there. And so he hits the gas and, and it kicks up more dirt and those wheels sunk a little bit deeper. And so, well, you know, maybe I'll just give it more gas and power my way out of there. And he hits up more dirt and gets a little bit deeper. And he thought, well, man, maybe if I just give it more gas, then I might hit a casket and kick my way out of there. And so he, he gives it more gas, and before you know it, that tractor's wheel is halfway into the dirt. And he thought to himself, man, I can't, I can't get myself out of this situation. And so the, the company had to bring another machine that has a big old crane to, to lift him out of that dirt. But such is the picture of all of humanity. The fact of the matter is, no matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter what happens, there's no effort that we can give to save ourselves. The truth of the matter is we need somebody outside of us to deliver us from our sin. And that is exactly what Jesus do. Paul tells us in this verse, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Look at how inclusive this verse is. It's not just some people. It's not just the Chinese. It's not just the Korean. It's not just American or, or Mexican. But the fact of the matter is, All people, all men, ponto, anthropun is the Greek word. All human being, all of humanity needs to be saved. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 
So Paul told, tells us something that's happened in the past. Christ came, and there was present implication. He brought salvation to us because we all need to be saved. Furthermore, Paul tells us that there's something that we need to do now if we are to receive Christ's salvation. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it means to be saved. Paul tells us in the next verse that Christ came to bring salvation to all men, instructing us, verse 12, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, there's something we need to know right here, right now. If we claim to be a Christian, what does that mean? What that means is, as we would put it in one word, repentance. Paul tells us there's something we are to, de to deny, and then there's something that we're to live for. He says that we're to deny, to turn away from living a life of ungodliness, right? We know what that is. We know how many of us who, who have made a decision to come to Christ, who know Jesus, we know how we used to live a life without God. God never crossed our mind. His word never crossed our minds. His commandments meant nothing to us, and we live a life of self-centeredness, a life of chasing after pleasure, a life that has no regard for God. That is ungodliness. Furthermore, Paul tells us that Christ came instructing us to deny worldly desires. We don't have to look very far today to know what worldly desires mean. Just switch on a TV or Hulu or YouTube or Netflix or what have you, and the commercials come on and you would know everything about what worldly desires mean. Axe body spray. Put, put this on and you'll get all the girls and something more, right? You know, Corona Cerveza, right? Uh, la Vida Mas Fina, the, the, the finest life, right? You, you drink Corona and you get to live the finest life, right? Uh, Burger King, have it your way. You know, but that's what the world is telling us. The world is selling us sex. The world is selling us pleasure. The world is selling us indulgence and having it your way. Such is the way of the world. But Christ came instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. He's instructing us to leave a life of your selfishness and worldliness and to turn to live for God. Look at how Paul explains it. He says, to live sensibly. What an interesting word in New American Standard, right? Sensibly. But as you read the book of Titus in, in the New American Standard Bible, you see that that word occurs several times before this passage. And what it really communicates is a life of self-control, as opposed to the Cretans whom Paul described as always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, a life of indulgence and uncontrolled living, we are instead to live a life of sensibility and self-control. We're to live different from this world. Furthermore, we're to live righteously. That is a, a right relationship with God and doing the right thing that God says we're to do. And furthermore, we're to live a godly life. A life that is God-centered, where God is front and focus and center of our life. Whenever we come across a decision, we ask God, God, what do you think about this? And there's an opportunity, we ask God, God, is this from you? If there's a person you're interested, then you ask God, God, is this the girl or the guy that I should date? Right? We ask God 
what he wants and what his desire is because God is now in control of our lives. He's always been, but when we say that Jesus is Lord, then he has the final say in authority, ultimate authority over our lives. He is now front and center when it comes to living for the Lord. And so instead of living for the world, sensibility is now what defines us. Righteousness and godliness is the way we are to live. Not only that, Paul tells us something that's happened in the past, how we're to live now, but the way we're supposed to live, we're also to look forward to something to come. The next verse, in verse 13, we see that there's something for us to look forward to. Paul says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Paul is telling us that there's something or someone for us to look forward to. The blessed hope. What in the world is that, right? Hope is also another word that we don't really understand very well today either, right? We might say something like, I might say something like, I hope that there's fried chicken for lunch today. I love food, so, you know, food is my illustration often. But, you know, like, or, or we might say, like, you know, the World Cup's about to take place, and we might say, like, well, I hope my favorite country wins the World Cup this year, right? But all these are, are just merely wishful thinking. There's no real substance behind that hope. It's just merely a wish that you, you hope that something would take place. Or if you go into a church context and you talk about hope, then people might say something like, well, you know, I have hope because I know I'm going to heaven. Or that I will sing among the angels and, and, and what have you, walk the streets of gold. Um, all those things are true if you're a Christian. If you have made the decision to follow Christ, yes, we are going to heaven. Yes, we will sing among the angels. Yes, we will walk the streets of gold. But the, the, the hope, the Christian hope that Paul defines for us in this text, and in 1 Thessalonians and in other places, is something different from going to heaven. You see, the Christian hope that we have is not some kind of escapist hope saying that, well, man, this world is so bad, I just can't wait to go to heaven. It is not an escapist hope, but rather it is an eschatological hope. Eschatology is, is the study of last things and last day. And, and so the hope that we have is an eschatological hope that points us forward to the last day when Jesus will come and he will sit on his throne and he'll reign with rule and with righteousness and justice and every tear will be wiped away and every wrong will be made right. That is the hope that Paul points us forward to, to the day when Jesus will return. As we look in our world today, there is a lot of injustice. There's a lot of wickedness. There's a lot of corruption. But the Bible reminds us that we can take heart, that we can have hope because the righteous king is coming back to rule and to reign with justice and righteousness. The word and in between blessed hope and the appearing of the glory really functions more like an equal sign. It is a classic biblical parallelism in which Paul parallels the blessed hope with the appearing of God our Savior. And notice how Paul describes Jesus. First, he points to the divinity of Christ. He says that it is the appearing of the glory of our great God 
Christ Jesus. He, he is the perfect representation and glory of the invisible God. He is the God who's made flesh, the invisible God made visible. He is the appearing of the glory of our great God. Not only that, point, Paul points us back toward the salvific work, the saving work that Christ has done for us on the cross. He calls Jesus not only the great God, but Savior. Again, the fact of the matter is that we all need to be saved. God only sits on his throne in heaven, but he has done something about a miserable estate. He has come into time, died on a cross for us, for our sin, so that we might be saved. And therefore, Paul rightly call him, rightly call him a great God and Savior. Furthermore, no, notice how Paul calls Jesus by his title, Christ. Christos in the Greek, which is the equivalent of Mashiach, our word Messiah from the Hebrew tongue. And what that tells us is that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the chosen one. He is the promised one from scriptures of old. From Genesis all the way to Malachi, God has prophesied to us that a deliverer is coming. Genesis 3.15, after our first parents have fallen into sin. God tells us that the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. From there, all the way in Genesis, God promised a deliverer to us through the lineage of Adam and Eve. And then we go on and we see in Moses that as Moses was departing, he is about to die, Moses tells the people that God will give us a prophet and you shall listen to him. Then you go on in Old Testament canon, and you arrive in the, in the book of, of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and we see that in, in 2 Samuel, God promised David that he will always have a son sitting on his throne. So not only do we have a child coming, we have a prophet coming, and now we have a king who was promised to come. All that culminate to the birth of Jesus, which we're anticipating again next month as we celebrate Christmas. But that is who Jesus is. He is the anointed one. He is the chosen one. He is the promised one from God who has come to deliver us. That is the title, Christ Jesus. And from there, we can know that this blessed hope in his appearing is not some wishful thinking. Inasmuch as God has been faithful to fulfill his promise of bringing us a deliverer, he will also be faithful to come back again, just like he promised he would. And so we can know that this hope we have is steadfast and sure and certain. We do not hope in vain. As we live for Jesus today, denying ungodliness and worldly desire, we look forward to Jesus coming again, knowing that he will come back, he will take his throne, and he will bring justice and righteousness on this earth. And so Paul tells us something that's happened in the past, tells us what we're to do now, and he tells us something to look forward to. Then he tells us our identity as he tells us what Jesus has done for us. Look at what Paul says about Jesus and what he's done in verse 14. He says, this Christ Jesus gave himself for us. The word gave communicates the idea of a voluntary giving. 
just like Jesus says in the Gospel of John, that no one takes his life from him, but out of his own accord, his initiative, he lays it down, and he has authority to take his life back up again. He willingly and voluntarily gave his life for us. Furthermore, the word, the Greek word for in this phrase, in this verse, is the Greek word huper, from where we get the word hyper. But this word huper carries the idea of substitution. In as much as if you were to watch the NBA or whatever, and, and a player is playing a game and he got injured, maybe he pulled his hamstring, maybe he twisted his ankle, and he's not able to carry on anymore in the game, what happens? Well, a substitute comes in and plays in the place of that player. He plays for that player as a substitute. In as much as if you're a teacher and you know, you're, you're planning your lesson and you realize that you're sick, you got a sniffle or you, you caught COVID and, and you're not able to go into a classroom next day. Well, what happens? Well, what we have then is a substitute teacher who would teach in the place for that teacher. And that's the idea of who pair here in this verse that Christ gave himself for us, for our benefit in our place as a substitute. The fact of the matter is that because of our sin, because we have offended God, because we're sinners before God, rebels before the king, we deserve to die. Our sin demands punishment from God. And instead of us dying, Christ died in our place for our sin and took our punishment and bore our shame. Christ gave himself for us. Why? Why did Christ give himself for us? Look at verse 14. Paul gives us two purposes as we continue in verse 14. Paul says he gave himself for us to redeem and to purify. The word redeem here, to redeem us from every lawless deed. Every time we break God's law, we become slave to sin. And so this idea, this this word redeem here carries the idea of slavery, of us being enslaved to sin. And, and because of our sin, our slavery to sin, we were withheld from God due to our sinfulness. And so as a result, God came through his son, Jesus Christ, and shed his blood for us on the cross as a payment for our sin. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8 that whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. But then he goes on to say that whoever the Son sets free, he is free indeed. The truth of the matter is that if you have never made the decision to follow Jesus today, you are a slave to sin. Try as you might to stop sinning, to stop cussing, to stop doing things that you know are bad. You cannot do it. There's no way. You have no ability to stop sinning because you are a slave to sin. But that is why we need Jesus. We need him to set us free from our slavery. Not only did he come to redeem us from the slavery of sin, Paul tells us that Christ came to purify for himself a people of his own possession. This word purify here carries the idea of uncleanness, ritual uncleanness before God. We were all unclean before God. Emily Emmy and I have a little dog that we love so dearly. We love her to death. Her, her name is Lucy. And, uh, and we also have a gardening box out back. And so, you know, I go out there and water our plant 
you know, about every day. Uh, it's not raining, and our little dog Lucy loves to go out there with me uh, to water the garden. And, you know, so sometimes, well, not every time, she'll go out there with me, and as I water the plant, she'll go out there and chase after squirrels, run around, do her thing, and sniff around. And then she would come back sometimes, and she would just sit there and look at me with these cute puppy eyes so expectantly, and I know exactly what she wants. Because what's going on is I'm, I'm standing here with the you know, water hose, and I got it on you know, shower or whatever, and what she wants is for me to switch the full blast and blast it her way so that she can chase after the water. And so when I see that, you know, what I do, that little boy gets unleashed inside of me, and I switch to full blast, and I shoot it here, and she darts over here. I shoot it there, and she darts over there. I shoot it everywhere, and she goes everywhere. And before you know it, the entire yard is wet and muddy, and her paws are muddy. And so then, realizing the errors of my ways, I decided, well, let's quit and call it a day, and time to go back inside. And so in we go, and what does a dog do? Well, she wants to go and see her favorite person. And so she runs inside and goes see Emily and tracks mud everywhere. Paw prints on all the pristine surfaces that my dear wife has cleaned. And next thing you know, I'm in trouble. Who's this monster who let this muddy dog in and dirty up the place, right? Unacceptable. But in the same way as a muddy dog is unacceptable to be inside a clean house, we too, because of our sin, because of our guilt, because of our uncleanness, we are unworthy unacceptable to come before a holy God who is totally clean, totally pure, and totally good. But that is exactly why Jesus came. In as much as the Old Testament priest would take the blood of a lamb and sprinkle it onto every vessel, everything within a tabernacle so that it can be made useful for God to serve God. So Christ came to die on the cross for us, to shed his blood for us so that we would be covered by his blood, useful for his work. Notice how the verse ends. Christ came to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Don't miss that personal pronoun there, his own possession. Inasmuch as Glenn can say Kelsey is my wife, or I can say that Emily is my wife, there's personal relationship there, there's closeness, there's intimacy. So God calls us his own possession. We're special to him. God wants a relationship with us and wants us to have a relationship with God, and that is exactly why the Son of God came. He came to make us his. But more than just giving us an identity, Christ came to give us some new duty, a purpose, a meaning in life. Notice exactly how the verse ends as we wrap this up. Christ came to make us his own possessions, zealous for good works, zealous for good deeds. Now, don't miss the order of things here. Notice how Paul says Christ came. He saved us 
for good works. Good works don't save us, but it's because we're saved that we can now be about good works. But notice the adjective in that verse, zealous for good deeds. Christ, Christ didn't save a bunch of pew potatoes, a bunch of consumers who just come to church for you to say, entertain us, for you to say, I hope the worship is good today, for you to say, I, I hope whoever preaches a good sermon today. But no, Christ came to save a people who would serve him and further the cause of his kingdom. And so we shouldn't come here thinking, man, you know, I, so-and-so got this. Or, or say, well, you got this, right? No, but we should say, how can I help? What are the needs and where can I step in to serve the Lord? Notice the attitude with which we're to serve the Lord, zealous for good deeds. Just last Sunday, you all have heard of the big announcement of Charlie leaving us. Praise God that God is, is going to use him in another church. But with him leaving, we know that there will be some big big vacancy, big void that will be left behind. Who's going to be up here to lead worship? Who is going to be up here to help share the word? Who is going to be in the church leading community group? Who is going to step into this place? Not only is Charlie leaving, but we also know that already there are needs in the church. Who is going to go to the back and help Jeremiah prepare food? Who is going to stay behind and help clean up and wipe down the tables? Who is going to serve the Lord today? Jesus says, the fields are white for harvest. Beseech the Lord of harvest, therefore, to send workers. Christ came to save us so that we can serve him zealously. And so the main idea I want us to remember today is that we're to live for Jesus because he came to save us, and he's coming back again. Live for Jesus, because he came to save us, and he's coming back again. We live for Jesus, remembering what he's done. We live for Jesus, repenting, denying the way of the world, and living for God. And we live for Jesus, looking forward to his return. And the, the decision for you today is whether you will serve the Lord or not, and whether you will say yes to Jesus, to serving him and knowing him. And if you have never made the decision to follow Jesus today, I want to invite you to come to know him. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the fact that we're all sinful without God, without Christ, and that we need to be cleansed by Jesus. Jesus Christ wants a relationship with you. But would you say yes to him today? And if that's you, if you need to make that decision to follow Jesus, you can come talk to me, you can come talk to John, come talk to Charlie. We can help you with that. But let's pray together and give our yes to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what you have done for us through your son on the cross sacrificing himself to save us, to be a people of your own possession. Father, we pray to thank you not only that he died for us, but he, he's been raised and he's coming back again to take his rightful place on the throne and to rule with justice and righteousness. God, we pray that as we live for you today, would you, by your Holy Spirit, help us to deny ungodliness and worldliness and to live for you in a sensible, 
righteous and godly manner. God, you're good. And I pray that, Lord, as we continue, Lord, would you help us to be zealous for every good deeds that you're calling us to do. And God, I pray that may we be a people who are eager to step up to the plate and say yes to you today and every day. Father, we love you and we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.